Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 40, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. It's a little bit long today. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Continuing a, uh, a sermon series based on Marcus Borg's book, Speaking Christian. And we're talking about a lot of Christian language. Uh, we talked about Jesus and God, and last week we talked about um, salvation. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you're remembering that. And this week we're talking about atonement. And I wanted to start off by asking this question. What would you die for? Go ahead and shout. Just shout them out. Family. Country. Freedom. What else? Friends. Friends. Jesus said, no greater love hath anyone than this, that they give up their life for their friends. Amen. What else would you die for? Your faith. A lot of people or face that choice over the centuries, you know, over the millennium. Any other, anything else? Our country? Amen. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we're willing, there's a lot of things we wouldn't die for, right? Wouldn't care to die for, I'm sure, out there uh, in silly ways. But today we talk about uh, atonement. We talk about Jesus dying on the cross. And 
oftentimes the language we use to talk about this is Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I want to I kind of talk about that a little bit. That's a, that's a, in technical terms, that's called substitutionary atonement. And this is a notion that Jesus, Jesus died on the cross in our place. That, and, and that, in truth, it should have been us on the cross, but it was Christ who, who stood in our place. And, and though there's a lot of language in the Bible about Jesus dying for us and about sacrifice and the notion of Jesus dying on there, but this notion about Jesus dying as a substitution for us really comes to us. It, 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 isn't, it isn't necessarily it comes out, straight out of the Bible. It comes to us mainly from a guy named Anselm. Uh, who was uh, Bishop of Canterbury in 1097. In 1097, he wrote a book called Curdeus Homo, which basically means why God-man. Why did God become a man? Why did Jesus become the incarnation of, of God? And he tried to answer this question. And he, was, he was actually going up against uh, some earlier writings of, of Augustine that said that what Jesus represented was uh, a ransom to Satan, right? This, this kind of put up for a ransom notion. Uh, but uh, Anselm kind of took, uh, took exception with that, and he wrote out this whole notion about substitutionary uh, atonement. Basically, it goes like this. God's re- retributive justice... The, the, the God's justice, which requires retribution, requires that a penalty for sin be paid, and yet all have sinned. All human beings are sinful and therefore are not a worthy sacrifice. Only a perfect human specimen can satisfy the requirement of God's retributive justice. Right. So God's div- so God's divinity in Christ produced that perfect human and thus Jesus became a satisfactory offering to appease God. Again, like I said, this was a, a, a rejection of Augustine's uh, ransom to Satan theory of atonement. But I want to say, and I bring this up to, uh, you know, I, I point out who came up with this idea to point out that for the first thousand years of Christianity, this notion of Jesus as a substitution in our place wasn't there. Uh, that isn't the kind of uh, of um, theology they had around Jesus's death, and even after Anselm, uh, you know, this idea really didn't take off uh, right away. There were others, for example, uh, Abelard, Peter Abelard, in in the 1100s. He wrote out the, his book that the posited a moral influence theory of atonement, basically saying that Jesus Jesus's life. Uh, and death represented uh, his struggle to show us the way to a moral and the best life possible. And uh, for some reason, that one didn't gain as much, Abelard didn't gain as much traction as uh, Anselm did. And that, theory, that theology of substitutionary atonement kind of went forward. But uh, I... Uh, so the fact that it's a thousand, you know, a thousand years after Christ isn't necessarily a, a problem, but Marcus Borg in his book really does raise some issues with uh, some of the problems with this 
very dominant theology in our culture today. And here's some of the problems. One of the, one of the problems with substitution atonement is that it seems, first of all, it obscures the first century meaning of Christ's death. That is to say, when we, when we have that there, we tend to overlook some of the biblical and early church notions about what Jesus' death was what Jesus's death meant. The first thing that I want to say about that is that Jesus didn't die. Jesus was killed. Jesus was executed by the state, aided by a collaborating religious elite because and and he was killed. He was killed and executed on a cross because he challenged the domination system of the Roman Empire and the religious aristocracy that the Romans established in Judea. Jesus didn't die. Jesus was killed by the state. And killed in a very public way. They hung him on a cross. And this was a way of, this was a form of execution. You know, they could have snuck up and killed him any time. But they did it in a very public way, as if to say, if you go against us, this is what's going to happen to you. It was a warning to everybody else. Do not do like Jesus did. Do not go up against the the cultural norms of the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious elite that were running the show at the time. So it's important to remember that, that, you know, sometimes when we focus in on the substitution idea there, and, and you know, I understand where this comes from, particularly in John, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of does everything willingly, and I, and, and I understand that that has its own theology and its own ideas that come behind it. But at the heart of the Gospels, uh, there's a lot going on there that, and one of the most important things is that Jesus stood up for the kingdom of God. And when he stood up for the kingdom of God, they killed him for it. Uh, Jesus didn't just die. Jesus was killed and executed. The other thing, and, so it, it, and this, was, this was a primary focus of, of some of the early church. Paul goes out of his way to point out that Jesus died and was crucified and died on a cross uh, and Jesus, and Paul is forever pointing out uh, how Jesus's kingdom is a contrast to the the Roman Empire and to the religious system of the time that held people in oppressive in, in, held people under an oppressive regime. Paul said, "Be free, right, and embrace a life of freedom in Christ that transcends." these oppressive uh, elements in our culture. So uh, Jesus' death on a cross as, uh, a, because of his incitement against Rome is a very significant thing in the early church. The other thing that substitution does, it, it, it kind of impugns the character of God. It portrays God's justice as punitive. That the way God's justice works is that there needs to be that there is there is punishment for doing doing wrong for violating God's law. God demands blood, right? Uh, there, the main point of Christ it then is coming into the world is that Christ must die to satisfy God's insistence on blood because of the violations to God's law. 
And, you know, when I kind of say it that way, you kind of go, really, this was God's plan? This was what, this is what Jesus was all about? And I understand that there's a positive spin here, that, that God loves us so much that He gave up His Son to die in our place. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever should believe in Him should not die but have eternal life. But I read that and I say God gave His Son, but it doesn't really say that God gave His Son to be killed to let His blood flow in our place, what it says is is God gave us Jesus to follow and to know in a deep and real way so that when we do, we might enjoy a full and abundant life. Even, Even talking about life eternal here isn't necessarily talking about going to heaven. It's talking about the kind of life you live in the here and now. So it doesn't mention dying at all in that particular passage. So it kind of, you know, the notion of God's justice having to be punitive uh, really comes at a much later date. The understanding of God's justice in biblical terms has to do, is centered on the word shalom. It's centered on the idea of peace and reconciliation between God and the rest of the world. Between people within that world. It's about restoring the relationship and making the the relationship right between God and people and between people. That's that's a restorative justice. And and restorative justice as opposed to a punitive justice is, is a much more biblical concept of, of what God is trying to achieve. In fact, again, Paul says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That this is, a, this is what our ministry is about. is about reconciling God to the world and reconciling with each other. Building that right relationship and creating a world of shalom, uh, which is right relationship, which Jesus called the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven. Right? So, so when we talk about justice in, the, in, in biblical terms, we're really talking about this restoring of right relationships. That kind of restorative justice. It's not punitive. It's restorative. Right? So, and, and this is why we can say, you know, it's always been kind of a difficulty outside of the church realm whenever we talk about one of the biggest gripes people have is that how can we how can we say we worship a loving god who allows such terrible things to happen or or who punishes people in in certain ways and i would say well you know it's a good observation and i i'm not sure that we we don't worship a god who has that kind of punitive attitude we do worship a god who is so filled with overwhelming love for you and me that his God's main purpose is restoring us to right relationship with one another and with God. What God's passion is mostly about is pulling people together with God, to be with God. What God wants most in this universe is to be with us. So much so that God gave us Jesus and uh, one of the important things, and I'll get to that in just a moment, one of the important things that comes out of the first century is the notion that what Jesus represents is the fullness of God. 
is the revelation of God to the world. And the purpose of that revelation, again, is to restore that which had been broken. To restore the relationship. So the other thing, and and that brings me to my other point, is that the other thing about substitution is it it, it takes our focus, it changes the focus of what Christianity is about. And And again, like we said last week, it puts the focus back on going to heaven and concern about hell. And, and where are we going to go when we die? If, if it's about our substitution and it's about uh, God dying in our place so, or Jesus dying in our place so that we can go to be with God, it really focuses our attention again on the life after this one, not on how we live our life here today. And there's a lot of other things to be focused on. It, you know, the gospel at its heart is about transformation. This is what we said last week. Transformation of ourselves and transformation of our world. And the notion of substitution can sometimes distract us from that idea. So if if Jesus' death is not about substitution, then what is it about? You know, what's the, what, what, someone asked, what's the product here? What is it we get out of this? Um, and I want to say that the New Testament, the New Testament writers, in trying to make sense of Christ's death, offer up many other meanings to Christ's death. Um, Paul goes out of his way to acknowledge that not that Christ died, but was crucified, was executed by the state. I pointed that out before. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, We proclaim Christ crucified. And it, it was important for Paul to say that, to point that out. That we worship Christ. We proclaim a gospel that comes from someone that got killed by the state for the kingdom of God. Uh, and one of the main points of the gospel of Christ is whether it was an anti-imperial gospel. It was a gospel that promoted justice and equity and inclusivity. Something that the Roman Empire wanted no part of. And particularly the Jewish aristocracy of the time. The religious elite who wanted to keep things the way they were. And keep the people oppressed. And that keeps them quiet, hopefully, was kind of what they were going for. But death and resurrection, there's another important thing. Death and resurrection within the Bible, within the New Testament, becomes a metaphor for new life in Christ. Uh, The significance of Jesus dying is not that He died, but that He rose again, amen? That Jesus is alive in us. Paul, again, in Galatians 2, says, says in his baptism, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus lives in me because not because He died, but because He lived on. The fullness of who Jesus was and is in this world goes on and on. Death on a cross did not stop it. The tomb did not contain it, but it continues. The old Saul is dead. The new Paul is alive. The old Curtis is dead. The new Curtis is alive in Christ. And Christ is in me. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus implores His followers to take up their cross and follow Him. Does this mean that we too are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice in in substitution? No. So the cross must mean something else. We are to follow Christ into death and resurrection, dying to our old selves and being born again, to quote John, into a new creation. The point of Jesus' death 
is that Jesus was not conquered by death, but that Jesus lives in you and me today. The other thing is, and, and this is grounded in the understanding of Jesus as the revelation of God, and that Jesus becomes the revelation of God, Jesus on the cross becomes the revelation of the depth and breadth of God's love. The early followers of Christ saw Jesus as the primary revelation of God. And in Jesus, we saw and experienced what God is like. In Jesus, this is what God is like. Right? Thus, Christ's passion for the just kingdom of God and His willingness to die for that understanding of the world displays God's deep abiding love for humanity. There was not one thing God was willing to hold back in order to show us the kind of life made available to us through a right relationship with God. Right? It was an important, uh, it was God's, God wants the best possible world for us and is willing to die to point us in that direction. And there's also a lot in the Bible about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. There is a lot of sacrificial language. Jesus died for us. But part of it is that we, we misunderstand the word that is used for sacrifice, the, the notion of sacrifice, and what, in the biblical terms, what sacrifice really meant. To see, to see sacrifice as substitution misses some of the nuance of what the word actually means in the context of the early church writers. And the English word itself kind of point, if you look to its Latin, uh, its Latin root, uh, sacrum farce, which, uh, which means to make sacred. So the word sacrifice means to make sacred. And so a sacrifice is made sacred by its being offered to God. Animals offered to God in the Old Testament are made sacred and become a meal. One of the most significant things in the Old Testament is, is sharing a meal with someone. And so when, when animals were sacrificed, they were often eaten by the priest. And what it represents is a sacred meal between God and humanity. And that became this bridge between God and God's people. And so it wasn't so much that the, the blood was, was uh, going in our place, but it really represents this communion, if you will, between people and God. And it was a sacred ceremony, a sacred act of sacrifice. And there are many kinds of sacrifices in the Bible. The sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of purification, sacrifices of repentance and turning away from sin. But there again, it's not, it's not a substitute, but more of a making amends and, and uh, you know, uh, engaging in that repentance, uh, serving as a sign of that repentance. And there's another ancient understanding of the word that persists today. And I think this one points us in the right direction. We often use the word sacrifice when talking of another person dying for a cause or for a person even. Soldiers sacrifice themselves for their country. Firefighters sacrifice themselves to save lives. And the sacrifice is often motivated by love and by the greater good. Our, our, our men and women in uniform sacrifice themselves, putting themselves in danger, because, not because it's good for them, but because it's good for all of us, right? That's a, very, that's a very different thing. 
And the sacrifice motivated by love. Think of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor. Sacrificed his life trying to stop Hitler in Germany. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life up for civil rights. Uh, Bishop Oscar Romero gave his life standing up to the oppressive regime in El Salvador in the 80s. These people were willingly put their lives at risk out of love of humanity and passion for the greater good. And I dare say even the kingdom of God. And I feel as though this sacrifice, this understanding of sacrifice of Christ on the cross is grounded in in this understanding. That what Jesus did is stood up for the kingdom of God as God designed it. And the people in this world said no and hung Him on a cross. But once again, God said yes. Yes. And rose from, Jesus rose from the cross and lives in you and me today. The real heart of the word atonement has to do with this reconciling of relationship between God and humanity. And it's not the fact that Jesus died on a cross for a cause. A lot of people have done that. What is remarkable about Jesus Christ is that the revelation of God lives on in us. That is the atoning work. That is what happens. Uh, that is how Jesus' uh, Jesus's death becomes significant. In Jesus' life revealed in you and in me. I had some more questions, but it's getting late, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a chance to respond. You can talk to me later after the service. <laughs> Let us join our hearts together in prayer. God, we... We, uh, we hear these words about ideas that we've grown up and come to understand and have come to have deep meaning for us. And for many of us, perhaps we struggle with what, uh, we struggle with those ideas being challenged a little bit. I, we pray for wisdom, God. We pray for insight. And we pray for the ability to see Uh, how incredibly deep and wide is your love and how deep and wide is the significance of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.